So as I get up to uh, speak this morning about parenting and such, in case you didn't know, uh, this is my oldest son right here, Riley. And so if you uh, doubt anything that I'm saying, he knows where all the bodies are buried and can tell you the truth. And so feel free to ask him and bug him. But we're in the second week of a four-week series talking all about the legacy that I believe God wants to leave through your life, through a life of faithfulness. Remember, God does not want our deliverance to stop with us. Like if God has redeemed you, like if you have been set free by Christ, You should not be the last one in that line of being set free. But God wants to use you to deliver others. He wants to begin a legacy, to build a legacy, to build a name for Himself. Like He is seeking to build a legacy through your life and through your failure. Like King David writes of this responsibility, and he writes this in Psalm 145, one generation will declare your works to the next and will proclaim your mighty acts. And so here we have what I would call the normal rhythm of faithfulness in the Christian home, in the believing home, like dads and moms speak to their kids about what God has done. Like done in the Word, done in their life, is doing right now among like their friends and family and among the nations. Like that is the normal rhythm of a Christian household. Is that the normal rhythm of your household? Like what comes out of your mouth as the overflow of your heart? Like that's the legacy you will leave. And in a sense, a legacy is, like I said last week, more felt than often it is remembered. Like you will be forgotten. That's the reality of life. You will be forgotten, but your legacy will live on in your children and their children and in generations yet to be born. And this is the way it's supposed to go. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we read these words. God speaking. He says these words, talking about the Ten Commandments and talking about the Shema, that we are to love the Lord your God with all our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. These words that I command you today are to be upon your heart. First, parents, these words are to be upon your heart and then you shall teach them diligently to your children and you'll talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. Like your kids should not have to wait to go to church on Sunday morning to hear about how awesome Jesus is. Like they shouldn't have to wait until they sit in a Sunday school class or before a preacher to hear about the grace that God allows and provides for all of those who will seek Him. Like they should be hearing that from mom and dad. You are the first preachers. You are the first pastors of your children. Like that is the normal rhythm of a Christian home. Paul Tripp writes this. He says, you cannot impress We cannot impress our children with the fame of God's name if we are not impressed with it ourselves. We must be dazzled by God. We cannot give away what we do not have. Church, are you you dazzled by God? Like, do you find grace just absolutely amazing? Understand, if you don't, The fault lies with you. 
Like if you are not dazzled by God, it's not God's fault. If you are not amazed by grace, that's not the fault of grace. You're missing something. Like we should be in absolute awe that God would love us and send His Son to die for us. That He still wants us after our countless failures. Like we should be thanking God every moment of every day. We should be dazzled and our kids should see it because our families are their first school of theology. Like they're learning about God from us, about Christ from us, about grace from us, about the importance of the cross, about the value of the Scripture, by how we value it. Like the ways of God cannot simply be concepts in our home or ideas. Like they need to be our very reason for living. Dads here, dads especially, like what's your thing? Like everybody has one. Like the thing that kind of identifies you. The thing that represents like the overflow of your heart when your mouth speaks. Like what animates your life? What gives direction to everything else? That thing should be God alone. Like we need to love God. We need to love our kids and we need to love God in front of our kids. Why? Like, what are we hoping for? What do we long in our hearts to see happen in our children? Like, what do we see, hope to see produced by God in the lives of our kids? Like we said last week, our hope is that our children will live not unto themselves, but unto Christ. Guys, that should be the longing of your heart. Like, we need to start with the end in mind, and that's the end we long for. Like that our kids surpass us spiritually. That our kids get it. They connect the dots between what we say, what we do, and who God truly is. Like we should long in our hearts that our children and our grandchildren would say, I want their God to be my God and their ways to be my ways. In 2 Corinthians 5.15, we read that He, Jesus, died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves. That is the default rhythm of our lives. Like we are born selfish, born sinners, born where the focus of our attention and our greatest passion is for us. But Christ came and died that we would no longer live for ourselves but for Him who died for them and was raised again. That's the new rhythm that Christ wants to work in each one of our lives. You see this in the life of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Hannah prays this prayer, O oh Lord, if You will give me a son, I will give him back to You. He will be Yours for his entire lifetime. Christians, like is that your heart? Moms and dads, is that your heart? Because I got, I got to tell you, that's, that's the longing of my heart. It's the longing of my heart that my kids and their kids and the generations to come would build on what we have started and surpass us spiritually. Oh God, if You will give me children 
I will give them back to you. And they will be yours all of their lives. That should be our pledge. It should be our hope. It should be our prayer of every Christian parent. Like That's what faithfulness looks like. And remember, Christian parenting is all about faithfulness. We can't guarantee the results. We can't rob God of His glory. And if we're faithful, we can't carry the load of guilt. No guilt, no glory, no guarantees. So what do we do? What does faithfulness look like? Well, for the Christ-centered parents, it looks like this. Christ-centered parents communicate through the normal rhythms of life that God's approval matters most. Like we communicate in how we live and what we say and what we do and what we value, where we spend our time, the standards that we set in our home, that the pleasure of God is the supreme value in our family. Now, is that how most families operate? Like even Christian families? Of course not. Sadly, they do not. But that is the target we should be aiming at so that if we fail, and we will often, if we fail, we will fail in that direction. Like when we mess up, that we will falter and fail with our trajectory set on the right target. Like is that the normal rhythm of your household? Maybe another way to ask it is who whose approval directs your family? Who are you attempting to please with the decisions that you make in your home? With the standards that you set for yourself and for your kids? Like, are you living for the pleasure of God? Are you a Christ-centered parent? Because there are other options. And hear this, you don't have to serve the Lord. Like, if you're here this morning, understand... You don't have to serve the Lord, but you do have to choose this day whom you will serve. You will serve someone, and so you need to choose whose approval you will live for. You can choose to make the approval of your children your priority. Kind of making them happy in a vain hope that it'll, it'll somehow ensure a lasting friendship with your kids. Like child-centered parents. Child-centered parents communicate, once again, through the normal rhythms of their life. Like they don't wear a t-shirt that says child-centered parent. Right? But you know who they are, and you know when you're being one. It's through the normal rhythms of your life, you communicate that your child's pleasure matters most. We see this one all around us. Let's be honest. This is the default parenting style of suburban America. And yet for all of the energy spent, they are chasing and aiming at a moving target. I mean, think about it. Your kid, his favorite thing to do last week is not his favorite thing to do today. Maybe his favorite thing to eat last week isn't the favorite thing he does today. Like you can take your kids to Disney World, spend all kinds of money on them, and they will still be irritated with you. 
I mean, that's just reality. You can take your kids on the most elaborate vacation, fly them across the ocean, and they'll be like, I didn't get enough sleep, whining about it as they tour like some of the greatest places in the world because they're, they're little sinners just like you. And so guys, if your goal is to please them, that is, that is a lost cause because that is a moving target. Like these parents just absolutely stay so busy, they wear themselves out in this futile attempt to make Junior feel good about himself. I remember 30 years ago, almost 30 years ago now, Amy and I took a parenting class. It was a small group at Hill Country Bible Church of Austin. We went through a new book that they were kind of just considering using churchwide that really specifically addressed the failure of child-centered parenting. And it helped us identify all the dangers of child-centered parenting. However, one thing it didn't do is give us a good enough alternative. Like, understand, reacting against a parenting style, reacting against child-centered parenting is not enough. Like, because the opposite of child-centered parenting is not Christ-centered parenting. Like, it's not like there's only two options. And if I'm not a child-centered parenting, then my kids are going to be awesome and it's going to be a godly home. No, the opposite of child-centered parenting is me-centered parenting. Like me-centered parents communicate through the normal rhythms of their life that their own pleasure is what matters most. And here's another one that's very, very common. It hits all age groups of parents, but older parents I have seen like, seem to be even especially more susceptible to this one. Older parents who are kind of worn down by time, worn down by a pattern of child-centered parent, parenting, kind of get to that point where they're just tired, they throw up their hands and they say, what about me? What about my wants? What about my needs? When's my time going to get here, right? What about my happiness? And maybe your, your kids have been the center of everything for the first 15 years of their life and they have worn their parents slap out. And their parents are like, okay, it's my time now. Now guys, that happens a lot to older parents, but even though, like I said, older parents are markedly vulnerable, any age group can be a me-centered parent because after all, once again, this is the default rhythm of our lives. Remember? Second Corinthians 5, they should no longer live for themselves. That's our default rhythm. Like this week, I, I saw a video that was on the street interviews of young people, young adults, 20 to 30-ish, in New York City, and they were being asked this question. Do you want to have children? Any kind of a straightforward question. Almost, like just overwhelmingly, the answer of these young adults was, not no, but heck no. Like, I don't want to have kids. And the reason they didn't want to have kids is kids are a bother. Kids are expensive. Kids wear you out. Kids take away your freedom. Kids take the attention off of you. Like, their answers for not wanting to have kids were all incredibly selfish. And of course, they would throw in their climate change. It's not climate change. Like, it's expensive. That's the problem. It wears you out. You won't sleep at night. That's really the issue. 
And so most of the answers were no, but even the ones that were yes, like the people who answered yes kind of described the children they wanted to have as if it was like a fashion accessory. Kids are so cute. I just love their cheeks, their chubby little legs. They're just so beautiful. I just want to have one. And I thought, man, how sad is this? In fact, I, I thought, is this the last gasp of a dying civilization? Like when we start thinking that we don't want kids, or if we do, we want them because they make us look good. Like that is just ridiculous. So what's it going to be? Child-centered parenting? Or me-centered parenting? Well, there's one more option. Right? There's, there, that's very popular today. And here it is. It combines the worst aspects of child-centered parenting and me-centered parenting. And it's even more of a moving target than either of those. It's culture-centered parenting. Culture-centered parents communicate once again through the normal rhythms of their life that the approval of the world is what matters most. Hear this. This is really just fear-based parenting raised to the level of psychosis. Like culture-centered parents have this obsession with winning the approval of an ever-changing culture. Like it's a preoccupation with multiplying the likes of people that you don't like. That's what's so crazy about it. I mean, you're trying to win the approval of people you don't even know, and if you knew them, you would not want to hang out with them. Like, that's a culture-centered parent. Like, like, they truly wear their children as a fashion accessory that just so happens to match whatever the newest fad or style of culture is at that moment. And so guys, before you get completely discouraged, before you start thinking, if that's the state of the world and the state of my heart, like if I'm, if I'm my biggest problem and then my culture is aligned against me, how can you stand firm in your parenting in a world that is this messed up? This is a good time to remind you that failure never gets the final word. Your failure never gets the final word. God does. It is never too late to change your pattern of parenting, the rhythms of your parenting. Like you've seen God, I hope you've seen God prove this principle true in your own life over and over and over again. Like God makes this possible through the rhythms of repentance and confession. Like when you recognize as a parent that you've blown it, you don't have to stay in that condition. Like you can repent of that and confess it to God and confess it to your kids. Like we have said for years, when we mess up, we fess up. And there were times when we would have family meetings where we'd sit down with our kids and we would begin with an apology. And so our kids always loved it when we apologized to them and told them how much we had blown it. Uh, but sometimes it didn't end as well as they thought it would because we'd have a little come to Jesus meeting. We'd all be there together and we would start by saying, we are really sorry, we've, we've blown it. And we just need uh, to confess that to you and ask your forgiveness because 
we have put up with some stuff and let you do some stuff that we absolutely should not have. We've been passive and that time has ended. This is a new dispensation. (laughs) They didn't like those meetings as much. But sometimes you have to do that. Like we can change the trajectory of our parenting, but the pathway to that is repentance and confession. God can do more with your weakness than you could ever do with your strength. However, if you choose the wrong rhythm, hear this, you can be a failure before you fail. Now that's heavy. You can be a failure before you fail. And the reality is we have people in our church who are failures at parenting and they don't even know it yet. Like the choices that they're making for their family, the standards that they're setting, their kids are happy, they're smiling, they're coming to church with them. Everything seems good. They don't realize they haven't, they haven't realized because the fruit is not ripe yet. It's not harvest yet. But we can be failures before we fail if we set our lives on the wrong trajectory. And so in our time remaining, I want to look at one illustration from the book of First Samuel that illustrates this principle that you can fail before you can be a failure before you fail. And so turn in your Bibles to First Samuel chapter two. And let me give you a little background. The opening pages of 1 Samuel take place during the time of the judges when everyone in Israel was doing right in their own eyes, right? Like the world was just kind of crazy and Israel was acting really crazy at that time. And in chapter 1 of this book, the book begins with the story of two families. And it spends really the first four chapters contrasting both the parents in these households, and the children. We're first introduced to Eli, who's the high priest of that day, and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who serve as priests in the tabernacle of the Lord in Shiloh. And then we next we meet Elkina and Hannah, a couple, as they come to the tabernacle, which is the normal rhythm of their lives, to worship and to offer sacrifices to Yahweh. And during that time, Hannah is barren. And, you know, if you're a Bible person, if you've read the story, especially of the Old Testament, you know that this is a pattern that happens over and over again. Somebody wants to have a child and they're either too old or God has closed their womb and they cry out to God and God steps in, He intervenes, He answers their prayer as a reminder that unless he builds their house, like nothing's going to happen. If God doesn't build our house, we never can. And so she cries out to God. And really chapter 1 is all about the prayerful surrender of Hannah. Like Hannah, and it's, it's all about her prayerful surrender contrasted with the spiritual cluelessness of a guy named Eli, the high priest. Like you have this opening scene where Hannah comes and she goes to the tabernacle and falls to her knees and begins to weep and cries out to God in her distress, God, if You will just give me a son, if You will give me a son, 
I swear I'll give them back to you. And he will be yours all the days of his life. I'll bring him to the tabernacle and he will serve you as soon as he's weaned. He belongs to you. And the high priest Eli sees her in her distress. He sees her weeping, kneeling. He sees her lips moving, but he doesn't hear her prayer. And he concludes she's drunk. Like that's what he thinks of her. I mean, because that happens all the time, right? Drunk ladies come to church and pray. Like that's a normal thing. Maybe it was in that day. I don't know. But you have to be kind of spiritually clueless to see a woman in distress in prayer before God and just conclude that emotion can't be piety. That emotion can't be a fervent prayer. In fact, we see this again in chapter 3 when God calls Hannah's son Samuel to be a prophet. God speaks to him and calls him to himself and it takes three times for Eli to realize it's the voice of God and not simply a fitful dream. I mean, he is so spiritually clueless that this high priest of Yahweh sees the piety of Hannah as drunkenness and the call of a prophet of God as just a dream. Like we read that he is old and that he is losing his eyesight and we were able to see this like as the story unfolds that it's not simply he's losing his eyesight spir- uh, physically, but spiritually as well. Now once again, we cannot impress our children with the fame of God's name if we are not impressed with it ourselves. We must be dazzled with God. We cannot give away what we do not have. And Eli doesn't have it. In fact, we read in 1 Samuel 2.12, these words, very sobering words. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Like in fact, the word worthless men literally means sons of Belial. A title given to Satan in the New Testament by Paul. These sons of Eli were sons of Literally, worthlessness. And they did not know Yahweh. And then you see the evidence of this when offerings are brought to the temple, it was the job of the priest to make the sacrifice of God and then he would take some for himself, a portion of the meat that was determined by God. You get this part, but not this part. And they would stop the people before they would boil the meat Because they didn't like boiled meat. They liked roasted meat. And they didn't like what God had given them. They wanted what was the best cut of the beef for themselves. And they would stop the people and stick their fork in and pull out the best for themselves before it was offered to the Lord. They had utter contempt for the ways of God. Like you got to wonder, like what is going on in these guys' heart that they think that that's okay? They have such a low view of God that they're... Their role as priest was simply a job to them. Like they'd go to work and come home covered in blood from the sacrifices, so at least we get the best of the meat. That's what they thought. But verse 17 concludes, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of Yahweh. For the men treated the offerings of Yahweh with contempt. Contempt. 
And then we read in verse 22, Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So Eli keeps hearing like he like this was a pattern. This had gone on for some time that his bro, that his sons were not only showing contempt for the offering of God, but when women would come to serve Yahweh, they would pull them into a room and have sex with them. And so he speaks to them. He said to them, why do you do such things? Can I, can I just tell you, as, as a man and as a dad, that is absolutely the wrong question to ask. Hey, hey guys, guys, come on. Why are y'all doing this? Like, that's just such a passive, wimpy question coming from their dad and from the high priest of Israel. Like, it shows his misplaced loyalty to his sons instead of to God. Like, guys, why are you doing these things? For I hear that you're e- about your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. Guys, people are talking. Like, people know now. Like, this is not good for our brand. I mean, this sounds to me a little bit like culture-centered parenting, right? Like the goal of Eli in this passage seems to be avoiding embarrassment, not prizing high the name and fame of Yahweh. Like the problem that was going on was not simply that the sin was recognized by the people of God. That was not the problem. The problem was the sin itself. And at no point in his rebuke of his sons, this conversation. Like, does he deal with any of this or bring any consequences to bear? He says, verse 25, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? So guys, we've got to do something here, right? But they did not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Wow. See, their dad, instead of intervening, instead of stepping up like the man he was supposed to be, the dad, the high priest, instead of bringing consequences to bear and really confronting their sin, he wimps out, he's passive, and God steps up and does it Himself. And so here's the contrast we read about in the book of 1 Samuel. We read, we'll read these same words in verse 26 about a thousand years later about Jesus in Luke 2.52. The contrast between the sons of Eli and Samuel, now the boy Samuel, continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. How is that possible? Like He's actually growing up at this point in the same household. Like He's got a mom and dad who brought him after he was weaned to the temple, to the tabernacle, to serve God. And so he's seeing as the example this passive high priest and his reckless and sinful sons. And yet, he begins to fear the Lord and serve Him. And it says, verse 27, "...and there came a man of God to Eli," which is interesting to me because I thought it was Eli's job to be a man of God. But since he's not, God sends him one. 
A man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when ye were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. God is saying, haven't I blessed you enough? Haven't I given you enough? Like, haven't I honored you enough? Why then do you scorn my sacrifice and my offerings that I command for my dwelling? And circle this in your Bibles, honor your sons above me. By fattening yourselves with the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. He says, hey, you scorned my sacrifice. You, Eli, you scorned my sacrifice. You, Eli, fatten yourselves with the choicest of meats, like father, like son. His sons were only doing what they saw dad do. Like these, this is me-centered parenting. Like his pleasure was above the pleasure of God. Why do you honor your sons above me? It appears that child-centered parenting was not a peculiar kind of 21st century problem that was happening here 3,000 years ago. Why do you honor your sons above me? The Hebrew word that's translated honor, kabod, uh, means to be heavy, to be weighty, to be a burden, to be significant. It's used of something that's important and substantial. It's the same root as the noun used for the term glory in the Old Testament. Like it means to give weight to, glorify, or take seriously. Like what, what God is saying to him through this prophet that he sent to him is, Eli, why do you give greater weight to the whims of your son than you do to the Word of God? Why do you take more seriously the fleeting desires of your son than the pleasure of Yahweh. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go on and go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. God says, listen, those who take me seriously, I'll take seriously. But those who disregard me, I will disregard. Those who despise me, I will despise. In fact, later in chapter 3, when the word of the Lord comes to Samuel, he gives his first prophetic message to his father, to, con uh, to, his, to Eli, the high priest, to confirm that God's judgment on the whole house of Eli is about to fall. And the evidence of this will be that his sons both die in the very same day. And Eli simply responds upon hearing this, it is the Lord. Let him do what he, what seems good to him. Can I just tell you as a dad, that is a terrible response. Like if God speaks to you and says judgment is about to fall on your household because of your sin and the sin of your children, that is a call to brokenness. 
It's a call to repentance and confession. It's a call to intercession. God, whatever You need to do, bring my kids home. I confess my sin. I've confessed the pattern. The rhythm of my life has been to disregard You. I've been a fool. I don't deserve to be Your priest, but spare my family and turn their hearts back to You. Like Eli's response is not trusting in the goodness and sovereignty of God. It's simply him giving up and wimping out once again as a dad. Guys, if you choose the wrong rhythm, the wrong pattern, the wrong path, you will be a failure even before you fail. Even before judgment falls. However, if you choose the right rhythm, you can be a success even before you succeed. Like if you say, you know what? I know this is a hard situation and this is it seems like a test from the Lord or a temptation or a trial that I can't handle, but I know what God says in this scenario. I know what God wants me to do because He's made it clear in His Word. And it doesn't seem like if I obey Him, it's going to end well. But you know what? I don't need to worry about the consequences. Like I'm going to trust God regardless of the consequences and I'm going to obey Him. Can I just ask you, when was Hannah a success in her parenting? Like when she knelt at the tabernacle and cried out to the Lord, God, if you just give me a child, just give me a son, and if you do, I'll give him right back to you. And he will, he will be yours all the days of his life. She was already a success at that moment. She was already a success when she came to the tabernacle when her child had been weaned and gave him to the Lord's service. She didn't know he was going to be a prophet of God. She didn't know he would be the greatest of the judges of Israel. She didn't know that he would get to be the one to anoint the head of King David and set up that legacy that would lead directly to Christ. She just knew that God knew more than she knew. And she trusted Him. Let me, let me take this in our closing moments and apply like this principle to the whole arena of disciplining our kids, which seems to be where Eli failed miserably. We need to understand that situations that call for discipline provide some of the most teachable times in the lives of our family. Some of our best family times, our best times with our children, were when they had failed miserably or when we had. And we got to confess it and they got to confess it. And we get to communicate what grace is in a way that felt real and tangible and not just as a concept. Ted Tripp writes this, there is no more powerful time to press the claims of the Gospel than when your children are being confronted with their need of Christ's grace and the power during discipline. And then he says this, when the wax is soft during discipline, the time is right to impress the glories of Christ's redemption. 
Like I remember it's probably 25 years ago now, I went to a parenting conference led by Ted Tripp in Atlanta, and I heard him kind of unpack this. And he explained it this way. He goes, every time you discipline your children, that's an opportunity to point them to Christ and to show them the need of the gospel. He goes, it works out like this for me. If I, my, my son, Ted Jr., does something that's rebellious or terrible or just childish and stupid, whatever, I'll sit down with him in that moment of discipline and I'll say something along the lines of, hey buddy, do you ever feel like, like you can't win for losing? Like you, like you know the right thing to do. Like it's in your heart and mind. You know, all I have to do is say yes to this or do this right thing and yet you repeatedly fail to do not just the right thing, but you end up doing just the wrong thing. Do you feel like there's a battle going on inside of you? And his son would say, yeah, Dad, that's exactly how I feel. And Ted Tripp would say, well, you know what? That's how your dad feels too. I have that same battle going on in me. You know, buddy, that's why we need Jesus. That's why God had to send His Son because left to ourselves, we would always lose that battle. Left to ourselves, we would always be slaves to sin and there'd be no way out. That's why grace is so amazing. Like that's parenting. Like that's a healthy rhythm of discipline. Like when our kids act up, that's what we get to bring to bear. Ted's little brother, Paul Tripp, writes this. If your eyes ever see and your ears ever hear the sinfulness, weakness, and failure of your children, it's never an accident. It's never an interruption. It's never a hassle. It's always grace. Like this is God's plan. God exposes the needs of our children so we can step into those moments with gospel grace. Sure, they need discipline, but they need not just the outside of their lives changed, they need their hearts changed, and only the gospel will do that. And when we bring grace to bear on that moment, we make the cross beautiful. We make grace reachable. Tripp goes on to say, parents, don't get mad because your children need parenting. Don't get mad at grace. How different would this story have ended for Eli, Hophni, and Phineas if dad had just stepped up? We don't know. His kids may have rejected it anyway. But what if they had seen in their dad deep repentance and confession of sin? What if he had used this as a moment to show them grace by showing them the discipline of the Lord? I mean, Hophni and Phinehas desperately needed to know that. And they never got a chance. Like your kids, like Hophni and Phineas, need to know that their greatest problem is not outside of them, but it's inside of them. And if they don't recognize that, they will resent and resist your efforts to parent them. They need to know that there is a Redeemer. Someone who can rescue them from them. 
Proverbs 20, verse 7 says this, The righteous who walk in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Don't you want that for your kids? The message puts it this way, God-loyal people living honest lives make it much easier for their children. The opposite is true. You can make it hard for your kids or easier for your kids. And the way you do that is by saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Do what I am doing. You cannot impart what you do not possess. Christ-centered parents communicate through the normal rhythms of their life that God's approval is what matters most. And can I just say, that's not a moving target. God has spoken and He's never changed His mind. God has spoken in His Word and it does not change. And so we just need to say, hey, if this ever happens with our kids, what will we do? We'll search the Scriptures and see what God says. And then we'll do that thing. Like, well, But what if? What, what if if I do this thing, my kids may rebel? If I, if I call them to this standard, they may resent me. If I do this, I might lose them. And yet we just need to be God-loyal people who say, God, I know that Your way is best. It's the best for my children. It is the path of life. You are for them more than I am for them. And I'm going to hold them to Your standard. And I'm going to trust You with the consequences. Understand, the story of your children is not over. If your kids are still alive, the story of your children is not over. God can do above and beyond everything we ask and imagine. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this table, a tangible reminder of Your grace, how You took the worst moment in history and turned it for our good and for Your glory. God, You can do that in our parenting. You can do that in our families. You can do that in our marriages. Regardless of what has happened in the past, today can be the first day of obeying You and trusting You with all the consequences. And so Lord, I pray as we come to this table that we would remember that on the cross, Jesus bore our failures. He bore our sin. He bore our rebellion so that we would no longer live unto ourselves, but unto Him who died in our place and rose again. We thank You for that grace. In Jesus' name, Amen.